Be Thou My Vision is one of my personal favorites. It's such a great song, rich with uh, meaning and, and uh, um, relational theology. Um, thank you, Luke, for leading us so well. Uh, Ethan, great job, man. Good, good deal. Uh, choir as a whole, thank you, worship team, um, for just being willing to worship honestly and freely before the Lord. It's such a great honor to be a part of. But that, that song, if you ever really look at that song, the message that it contains. Uh, specifically, uh, I, I wrote down the, the second verse, uh, Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. It's a relationship. Thou my great father, a father-son relationship, and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Wisdom from God that we can't attain any other way except through his revealing it to us. A relationship with God the Father that's not possible aside from the sacrifice of Jesus, his son, and oneness with the Father. Jesus said we could have oneness just as he and the Father are one, all made possible because of grace and because of mercy. Nothing that I just mentioned do we deserve. You agree with that? We cannot earn it, we cannot do anything to gain God's favor on our own, but God gives it to us freely because he loves us. He is love, and it's all about grace, and it's all about mercy, and this morning we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible because, number one, it's got one of the weirdest names in all the Bible, all right, but number two, number, number one should be the message, right? Let me reverse that. Number one is because it communicates so very beautifully in the lives of human beings, the grace and the mercy of God, but yeah, it does have a pretty cool name in there too, so I'll throw that in there. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and so if you will just turn there with me in your Bibles, we're going to read, you know, David we know was a man after God's own heart, right? We know that. He wasn't a perfect man. He failed miserably on a couple of occasions, uh, but yet, overall, the course of his life, we see that he is a man who pursued God, and because God could see his heart, knew his character, knew his desire to know him, God pursued him uh, and used him in incredible ways. And this story, while probably one of the lesser-known stories in the Bible, shows that David, because he was a man after God's own heart, was able to model in his life the grace, the mercy, the faithfulness of God. And we'll see how. Let's look at chapter 9. We're just going to read through the entire chapter together. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from Saul's family that I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? Jonathan being Saul's son. David and Jonathan were, were, were close, like brothers. Uh, and had a covenant that they would be faithful to one another. Even after one of them was gone, they would take care of their family. And we'll talk about why that is such a, a significant promise in a few moments. Verse 2, there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan... Jonathan's son, who was injured in both feet. You see, when it, news came down that Jonathan had been killed on the battlefield, along with Saul, uh, the, the lady who nursed uh, Mephibosheth, uh, Jonathan's son, 
took off with him to try to, to run for, for cover, for safety, and ended up dropping him, and he, he, as a result, was crippled in both feet. He was injured, and that's what that verse is referring to. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, you'll see that account. And then verse 4, the king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you will find him in Lodabar, the house of Mekir, son of Emil. So King David had him brought from the house of Mekir, son of Emil, and Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to the ground, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant. He replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, don't be afraid. I intend to show you kindness because of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Totally humble before King David. Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba, brings him back, and he said to him, I've given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops of your master's grandson uh, so, so that your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so this is, this is good for Mephibosheth. He's going to have plenty of labor uh, to work his family's fields, to be taken care of. In addition to the promise that he could eat at David's table, he's set for the rest of his life. Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's tables. His feet had been injured. An important tag at the end of that. This was important. You know, if you were disabled in this day and time, you were on your own. I mean, there was no... There was no real help for you. Your life, your, your, your long-term life picture uh, was not good. Um, and this, this act of David, in and of itself, even if there's no relationship between Mephibosheth and Jonathan, is a pretty incredible act that he would, would, would take care of this man who couldn't take care of himself. But it's the relationship between David and Jonathan that sparks this act of grace and mercy. And an incredible act it is. And it models for us, and here's, here's why it's so very profound, so very significant, because we see within this act a model, a beautiful picture of the grace and the mercy that God shows us, that Jesus offers us. The act that he performed, giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross so that we could be free from sin. This story is a beautiful portrayal lived out in the lives of fallible human beings. David, yes, was a man after God's own heart, but these are imperfect human beings modeling the grace of God and, and, and in an incredible way. This story has valuable lessons for godly, merciful living and, of course, acceptance of salvation, the salvation that we are offered. Some of the characteristics here, the truths we see about David. And first is that he was a man of integrity. That's number one. I mean, David, yes, he was imperfect. He made mistakes. He failed. He fell on his face. And boy, when he did it, he did it big time, right? I mean, he, you know, when he failed, he failed big. Big victories, big failure. But he overall was a man of integrity. 
Um, it took some doing even after his sin with Bathsheba, but eventually he came clean and, and completely open and honest before the Lord. He accepted the consequences. He admitted his wrongdoing. That's what a man of integrity does. Um, and that's what he did. And, and he shows that in a different way here in his loyalty. Look at verse 1 again. David asked, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family that I can show kindness to because of Jonathan. So, you know, David was a man of character. This is just another example of his character. How do we know he was a man of character? Well, all throughout his life we see, you know, if you just take a few snapshots from his life, you'll see, you know, what type of a man he was. Uh, one was, you know, he, he, his, his willingness to be led by God. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart, and God led him, and he followed him regardless of where God led. And we see that first in the story of David and Goliath, right? I mean, insurmountable odds, a huge giant, a young, young, small man. Um, and, and everyone's afraid of this man, this giant, except David, because David knows that he's led by God to conquer this giant. He knows that God's chosen people are led and favored by God, and so he shows incredible boldness when others are running in fear. And we see this in what he says to the giant. In 1 Samuel 17, 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, He's saying this to Goliath, of course, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, you whom you have taunted. David says, you know, you're big, you've got some powerful weapons, and yes, you're coming at me with those weapons, but I'm coming at you with the power of God. It is God who goes before me. I am led by the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. And no one can stand against that. He was led by God, and he was loyal. He was loyal to God, but he was loyal to Saul. I mean, think about this. I mean, Saul was, when, when it became known that, that David was the next anointed king of Israel, Saul became very jealous. Saul was king at the time, of course. He became very jealous. And, and David had done nothing but be uh, good to Saul, had, had been loyal to Saul, but ga- David began to gain fame. Saul began to be more jealous, and he wanted him gone. He wanted him dead, and so he begins to look for a reason to take David out and, and attempts to do that, and David has to run for his life. And David could have been bitter, and we see in some of the be- most beautiful passages of Scripture, David crying out to God because he's, he's running for his life and, and, and he's hurting and he's, you know, he's, he's afraid and all of these things. But, but David never turned his back on God's anointed at the time who was Saul. And he was loyal. And we see that in two very clear instances where David, you know, he could have taken Saul's life, right? One, one, Saul, one time Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. And while he's doing so, David sneaks up behind David's men and says, Here's your chance. God has delivered you into his hand, into your hands. Had delivered him into your hands. And, and so take him out. You, know, you can take your throne right now is what they're saying. But David knows that's not the right thing to do. He sneaks up behind Saul, cuts off a piece of his robe, and then he begins to feel guilty for doing that. And he goes to Saul and he explains to him, you know, I could have done this. I could have taken your life, but I didn't. But here's what he says to his men. And this is a glimpse into his character. First Samuel 24, 6, he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, speaking to Saul, about Saul, who is the Lord's anointed. 
to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. He would not, as long as God let him remain in power, David wasn't going to shortcut that. He could have taken the throne in that moment. He had powerful men with him. He had the chance, but he was not going to shortcut God's plan, and he was not going to act against Saul. He was loyal. He was loyal to God. He was loyal to Saul, even when Saul was chasing him in life. And another time, he could have had it, taken his life. Um, Saul is sleeping. He, is, uh, he, he and uh, Abner are sleeping in camp. David sends some scouts. They realize he's there, and he and Abishai, David and Abishai, go into the camp after they're all asleep. And Abishai's, he doesn't even say, David, you do it. There's a spear right by Saul's head, and Abishai says, let me do it. One, one fell blow, and it'll be over with. I won't have to strike twice. But David says, no, that's not the way to do this. That's not the right way to do it. Verse 9 of 1 Samuel 26, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? Now, who does that? I mean, think, remember, Saul. Is, if Saul had the chance, David would be dead. If Saul walked up on David relieving himself or sleeping, he wouldn't have to think twice. But David's a man of character. He's a man of integrity. He's a man after God's own heart. And he says, no, we're not doing it this way. I will not shortcut God's plan. And I will not go against the man he has as king right now. He was loyal, and we see that loyalty possibly no more clearly than his relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. They had a special, special relationship. They had made a covenant. They were knit together. They were more than friends. They were closer even than brothers. They were knit together. They they recognized in each other a, a, a... similar character, a similar desire, a similar passion for the Lord uh, and and to do God's will, Uh, a trust in God, a trust in the Lord that he would fight their battles for them. They, They were one in spirit and they had made a covenant with each other that no matter what happened, now and again, Bear in mind, this covenant was made after David had been anointed as the next king, and Jonathan should have been the next king. Now think about that. So instead of being jealous of David as Saul was, Jonathan loved the Lord, and he loved David. And he made a covenant with David. David made a covenant with him that, hey, long after we're gone, I'm going to make sure your family's taken care of, which is very significant. We'll get to that in a moment. David does the same. He's going to be the next king, but I'm going to take care of your family, Jonathan. I will not go back on my word. A covenant before God. This is the type of relationship they had. And it was this covenant that that motivated David to seek out a descendant of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. He wanted to show kindness. And that word, show kindness, this is what it means. It means loyal love. It's not just, hey, I'm going to do something nice for you. This is loyalty. This is commitment. It's speaking of that covenant that he had made with Jonathan. A covenant that was forever before God that he would not go back on. Just as he would not shortcut God's plan and take out Saul before it was time for him to become king, he would not go back on the covenant that he made with God and with Jonathan. He wanted to show his commitment and show his loyalty, his love for Jonathan by taking care of his descendants. Jonathan requested this of David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14. If I'm still alive, will you show me the loving kindness of the Lord 
that I may not die. You shall not cut off your loving kindness. He's basically saying now, if I'm gone, do not cut off your loving kindness forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan knows. He's the next king, and he's saying, David, I'm, I, I'm taking care of you. This is when he finds out. Jonathan finds out, yes, Saul's trying to kill David. They set up that little test, you know, with the arrow, and, and, and it's true. He's, he's, he's wanting uh, to kill David, and, and, and Jonathan says, hey, David, I'm going to protect you now, and I will always be loyal to you. I'm asking the same. In return, if I'm alive, be loyal to me. Even if I'm gone, be loyal to my descendants. And David agrees. And David lived his life according to the integrity that he displays. We see these examples, and that's the way he lived his life. Again, he failed, but overall, he was a man of integrity. He was a man who lived up to what he said. You know, there's a, a story that, that, that caught my attention. I was reading, I don't even remember where I found it originally, but I was reading, uh, and I wasn't reading this book, but I was reading, uh, studying, and, and found this story about, about uh, integrity. And Booker T. Washington wrote a book, Up From Slavery. You've probably heard of it. And in that book, he tells a story. He said, I found this man had made a contract with his master two or three years prior to the Emancipation Proclamation to the effect that the slave, this man, was to be permitted to buy himself. He could purchase himself by working and paying for himself. Can you imagine? He agreed to do that. He paid so much per year. He could work for whomever he wanted, but he had to go back and pay this amount. It was like a loan until he paid himself off. He, he was able to buy himself out of this man's uh, ownership. And finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio, this slave, he, he says, this man went there. When freedom came, he was still in debt to his master, some $300, but he's free now. He doesn't have to pay that debt. And who would blame him if he didn't? I mean, none of us disagree with the fact that slavery was horrible, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt and, and I'm sure he was mistreated on several occasions in ways that you and I could never imagine, yet he had this debt. He had made an agreement, and here's what happens. The Emancipation Proclamation had freed him, Washington says. Uh, he'd freed him of his obligation. Legally, he was free of this obligation. He no longer needed to pay this debt. But he, in the end, he walks a distance all the way back to Virginia, where his former master was he's free now and he did it to pay the last dollar he owed him now why did he do that Washington says in talking to me about this the man told me that he knew he did not have to pay this debt but the, that he had given his word to his master his master slave owner he had given his word to his master and if he had done that he could not break his word. Now, bear in mind, that's probably about all this man had was his, his character and his word. He would not break his word. He felt that he could not enjoy his freedom until he had fulfilled his promise. Now, I mean, anytime you're, you're, you're tempted to go back on your word, I mean, think about that. I mean, no one would have blamed him for not doing that. No one would have blamed David for not keeping his commitment to Jonathan. Jonathan's family was a threat to his throne. Okay? And so no one would have blamed him for just getting rid of all of Saul's descendants. But David would not do that. Unlike his predecessor Saul, David was a man of integrity. And in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel told Saul, verse 14, 
But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Why did Saul lose his throne, his crown? Because he had not kept the commandments of the Lord. And David has shown us that even under great threat, even under great duress, he would keep the Lord's commandments. He would not be disloyal to to God or God's anointed. David was a man of integrity. Second, David was a man of mercy. This is such a great story of mercy and grace. But we'll start with mercy. David was a man of mercy. Now think about this. We're going to draw some parallels this morning. We look at first let's look at Mephibosheth's condition, okay? Mephibosheth, he was helpless. Had, had no way, no right to go before David and beg for mercy. No, no, there was nothing. He wouldn't have dared to do so. He was a descendant of the former king in his mind, and rightfully so. He thinks, hey, if I, if I, if I push it here, you know, I'm going to be killed. David will take me out. But he goes in verse 3. David brings him in, and, and this is, we see this. The king asks, is there anyone left? Of Saul's family that I can show kindness, the kindness of God to. Ziba says, there's still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. So David calls in Ziba. And an heir of Saul, Mephibosheth is, David has every right to kill him. I mean, there's no, I mean, he has absolutely no grounds to go before David. He's, I mean, he's helpless here. There's nothing he can do. He's, at, he's totally at the mercy of David. And his condition was hopeless. I mean, you know, he, Again, his outlook because of his physical condition and his outlook because of who he's Jonathan's son, it's not good. His his lifespan is probably not going to be very long without some divine intervention, some mercy. And in verse 8, Mephibosheth bows to the ground. He knows he's hopeless. He knows, I mean, for all he knows at this point, you know, who knows if he he realizes David's wanting to show kindness. For all he knows, I mean, David's bringing him in there to kill him. But he bows before David. And he says, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Totally humble. He's, his condition is hopeless. Now think about this. He's crippled. I mean, he, and in the, again, in this day and time, that, that's you know, pretty much a, a death sentence. You know, unless you've got people to take care of you, I mean, you, even then your, your outlook is not good. And so he's crippled. He's, he's broken. Physically, he's broken, unable to take care of himself. He's, got to, he's totally dependent upon others. But David seeks him out in this condition to give him both help and hope. He's helpless. He's hopeless. David says, I'm going to give you both, help and hope. Why? Why did he do that? Well, it was the right thing to do. I mean, you know, there, there are times in life where we're faced with, you know, the right thing or the wrong thing. And sometimes doing the right thing is going to cost you something. It's not going to gain you popularity. Um, it's going to be contrary to what others think you should do. But when you're alone, when nobody's looking, when it may cost you or you know it will cost you something, that's when you find out whether or not you have integrity. On a, in a much different way, uh, in 1986, I believe, uh, there was a golfer. You know, golf is one of those games. I enjoy playing golf, and I, I'm not very good, but I enjoy playing when I can. And, and one of the reasons I like golf is because you're playing against yourself. And, yeah, you can play with other people, but you're really battling yourself. Right, and, and, and golf is one of those games that you could go out and you could play and you could cheat all day long and nobody would ever know. That's not why I play. <laughs> not that I've always been completely honest. Uh, but, 
but, but that's one of the things I love about it is if you, you find out who you really are, right? When you, when you can take that extra shot, nobody's looking, or, or, or are you going to do the right thing? Are you going to keep, I mean, you're the one keeping the scorecard. You're the one giving the score. And, there was, and this has happened a couple of times. But there was this one golfer, and you may remember his name, Ray Floyd. In 1986, at the Hanover Westchester Classic, he is shooting an incredible game. And he's getting ready to, to, to tap in a routine nine-inch putt, nine inches. I mean, even I can make that most of the time. And then he sees the ball move just slightly. Nobody else sees it but him. He sees it, though. And so he's got a decision to make because according to the rules, he's got to dock himself a point. He's got to take a stroke here. So, but think, the stakes are pretty high. I mean, the, the prize here, the tournament, is $108,000. Now, you know, that may not seem like a lot now. In 1986, it was a lot more. But that's a lot of money. So there's a lot. It's, it's not just me, you know, on the back nine deciding whether or not I'm going to take a mulligan. It's, this is the big stage, big time. Nobody's looking. And, and you know, writer David Hall. Hall Hallahan describes what he thinks most people should, would have done. He said, most golfers, he said, the, the athlete, he's reporting as if this happens, okay? He says, the athlete ducks his head and flails wildly back from the ball like he's being attacked from a bee. So he's distracting attention. Then he, then he, then he pretends something in his, is in his eye, and he's, he's getting it out, and all the while he's scanning the crowd, he's scanning the other players to see if anybody saw the ball move. So that's what most people would do. Once he realizes nobody's seen him, he just taps in the putt, you know, takes his score, and, and, and he goes on. But that's not what Floyd did. And not many people would have blamed him. You know, when this story came out, uh, one guy was reporting it on a radio show, and one lady called in livid because this guy took a stroke, because he didn't just tap it in. She could not understand why anybody would do that. Most people would have just said, yeah, that makes sense. That's a lot of money. Nobody saw it. No harm, no foul. But Floyd, he said, no, I can't do that. He assessed himself the penalty, and he winds up taking a bogey on that hole. He, he risked losing because of that. And he was asked later, why would you do that? And he said, well, I mean, if I can't play by the rules, if I can't do what's right when nobody else is looking, and I'm paraphrasing, but what kind of man does that make me? And that's true character. That's true integrity. Doing the right thing even when nobody else is looking. Doing the right thing, even when everybody else says you should do the wrong thing. And that will happen in your life if it hasn't happened already. Doing the right thing, even if it costs you something. And that is exactly what we see David doing. Everybody, listen, he, not only would he have been, you know, people encouraged him to, to, to kill Mephibosheth, he would have been justified in doing so. Mephibosheth was a threat to his throne. It was, it was expected that he would kill him, get rid of all of those who were a threat. That's what kings did. And so he's got all these people telling him, I'm sure in his ear, what are you doing? Why are you bringing this guy in to show kindness? Why, you, you should kill him. He could take your throne. But he does the right thing, even though everybody else is telling him to do the wrong thing. He does the right thing, even though it could cost him. There was no guarantee that Mephibosheth would just treat him, hey, thanks. I mean, he, he could have cost him. It could have cost him greatly, but David does the right thing. David's heart and motives drive him. His love for God, his love for Jonathan, drive him to show mercy, 
not revenge. He did the right thing even though it could have cost him. David doesn't stop there, though. Not only does he say, I'm going to spare you, he says, now you have a seat at my table. I'm going to provide people to work your land. The lineage of Jonathan would continue. The legacy. You've got a seat at my table, which basically was a pension for him. He would never have to worry about food again. He would never have to. He's living in the king's, he's got a seat at the table in the king's palace. He's taken care of. He gave him all that belonged to Saul and his family. Verse 7, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all that your grandfather Saul's, uh, all of his fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. He granted him the right to eat at his table. He gave him back all that belonged to Saul. Why did he give him that? Because that now belonged to David. He's the new king. He says, I'm giving it back to you. Verse 10, David told Ziba, you, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. So I'm going to take care of all you who are where you work the fields, you're taking care of, uh, of yourselves, you've got food to eat. But Mephibosheth, you're dining with me, the best of the best. You've got a seat at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's grace, folks. That's not just mercy. He didn't just spare his life. He goes above and beyond what Mephibosheth could have ever imagined and shows him grace. What a beautiful picture. And in doing so, David illustrates for us the mercy and the grace that's available through Jesus Christ. That's number three. He illustrates perfectly. We are just like, think about this, we are just like Mephibosheth. We are Mephibosheth. I want to be Mephibosheth just because I like the name. But we are like Mephibosheth because we too are helpless, unable to go to the king on our own and beg for mercy. We have no right to beg for mercy. Mercy is all we can beg for, but, but on our own we have no way to get there. Sin is too much of a barrier. We are separated. There is no, there's no situation, no circumstance that makes it possible for us to go to God on our own to even beg for mercy because without Christ, we can cry out all we want. If Jesus hasn't died on the cross, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, we can cry all we want and he's not going to hear us. Sin is in the way. We are just like him. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Without Christ, we are helpless. Can't go to God on our own. We are also hopeless in that, like Mephibosheth, he's broken, right? He's crippled. We are broken by sin. Crippled by sin. We cannot take care of our sin problem. There's nothing we can do about our sin problem. This is all of us, right? I mean, look at, look at what the scriptures say, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, and sin entered the world. And, and from that moment on, every man that was born was born with a sin nature. You and I all are in that same boat. In Romans 3.23, if there's any question, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all done it. I'm up here as a preacher preaching about sin today. One of my favorite Andy Griffith episodes, by the way. He didn't preach on sin today. <laughs> well, I'm preaching on sin today. And here's the reality. I'm not up here saying, hey, you guys are a bunch of sinners. We are all sinners. 
myself included, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I can tell y'all need to, to brush up on your Andy Griffith trivia. Romans 6.23, we're all sinners, so what's the result of that? The wages of sin is death. We deserve death. And with sin and without Christ, our condition is hopeless. You know, it's interesting. What does Mephibosheth do when he comes into David's presence? He bows to the ground. He knows he's, 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 he doesn't have, doesn't have any right to beg for mercy. He knows what the likely outcome in human terms, human standards would be. And he, his, even his words indicate that he thinks that he should have to earn favor, right? That he, I'm not acceptable. You know, I'm, I, I'm a dead dog. You know, I can't do anything. And a lot of people who are lost are like that. They think, okay, I've got to do something to be acceptable, right? I mean, there's, I, you know, I'm not worthy. God could never love me because of what I've done. And that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. I mean, it's true. You can't. <laughs> that part's true. But God loves you regardless. But a lot of people think that way. You know, it reminds me of the prodigal son. The prodigal son takes his inheritance. Basically, in doing so, is telling his dad, I wish you were dead. He takes his inheritance. He takes off. He squanders that inheritance. And what does he say? Maybe my father will just make me a servant. He's not expecting much. But he knows the heart of his father. Maybe I can just work for him. Maybe he'll let me back in the house if I'll just work for him. He treats his servants better than the condition I'm in now. But what do we see? He starts home, and when his father, evidently, who went out every day to look for his son, no guarantee that he would come home, but he's looking. He sees his son a long way off. His father, dead sprint, runs to his son. He seeks him out, and he brings him home. Doesn't just make him a servant. He says, you're my son. He gives him full access to the family once again. A lot of people think I've got to earn my way. Maybe if I just go to God, maybe he'll just let me slide by or, you know, I can't. I, I've, I've been too bad. There's no way he would ever accept me. And God is waiting for you, just like that father waiting for his son. And if you will turn to him, not only will he turn to you, he will seek you out. He has sought you by sending his son, Jesus Christ, and he will come to where you are. And take you to where you need to be. You are absolutely 100% right. You are not worthy. I'm not worthy. Everything that you've done, yes, it does disqualify you from heaven. Sin, if you've committed the least sin, you've committed sin. And you are disqualified from heaven. But the beauty of salvation is, is that we don't have to be worthy. Jesus says, I'll take that penalty. I gave my life. If you will accept me, I will cleanse you of sin. And I will take you where you are, and I'll make you what you need to be. He will seek us out. And just as David sought out Mephibosheth, God seeks us in our horrible, hopeless, helpless condition, our sinful condition to give us both help that we desperately need and hope that we cannot have without him. You know, David had never met Mephibosheth. Think about it. He goes, is there anybody that's a descendant? He doesn't, he doesn't know Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth had done nothing for David, had nothing to offer David except a threat to his, his dynasty, his kingdom, nothing to offer him, yet David loved him for Jonathan's sake. Think about that. They were like family. 
David didn't know Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, he didn't know anything about his character, nothing. But David loved him for Jonathan's sake. And here's a truth that I want you to hear this morning. We are not saved because of our own merit. We are saved for the sake of Jesus Christ. When God looks at us, he loves us. He accepts us, though, not because of who we are or what we've done. He accepts us because of what his son Jesus Christ has done. Jesus gave his life. Without Christ, God cannot accept the sin that exists. We've all sinned. But because of Jesus, God says, I will accept you. But I'm not accepting you on your basis, on your merit. I'm accepting you on the basis of my son who has taken on your sin for you. We're accepted by God because of the righteousness of Christ made available to us through his death on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by a man came death, here's the, the, the second part of that. Sin comes into the world through one man, but since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Jesus became man, fully God, fully man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Through his resurrection, his death, his resurrection, we are made alive. Just as you saw illustrated through baptism this morning. Die to that old life of sin. Coming up out of the water represents that resurrection to life that's made possible because Jesus was raised from the dead. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, helpless, hopeless, Christ died for us. In Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek to seek us out where we are, to seek and to save that which was lost. According to the rule of the day, Mephibosheth should have died. He should have died. David should have killed him. By any measure, Mephibosheth deserved to die because of the position he was born into. He should have died. But David... Although he has the right to protect his throne, decides to show mercy and grace instead. And what was a hopeless situation, what should have ended in death, ended up in life. You and I should have died. We should die. We deserve to die because of the position that we are born into. We are sinners. We are lost. But because of God, because of Jesus, what should end up in death is transformed into life. I want to illustrate that for you. And since I'm preaching about grace, I'm going to ask Grace to come help me this morning. That fits. I have here a bag of water. So those of you that have been waiting for it's been a while, so you're, you can be excited at a water illustration. Uh, it's just good for so many things, right? Okay, Gracie, I want you to come here. You're going to hold the water. Do you trust your father? Huh? Yeah, that's not confident. All right, hold it with both hands, okay? I'm going to help you, but hold it with both hands. Now, I've got a bag, a Ziploc bag full of water here. And what I'm going to do here is show you... Well, I'm just going to stick these pencils through the bag, okay? I'm, I just feel like doing that. Are you okay with that this morning? Do we need to go get a towel, you think, from the baptistry? I think Andy may have left you a few. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Do you trust your father? All right, get in here a little closer. It's okay. Should I go this way? This way? What do you think? I feel like there should be some music, like some magician music or something. All right, you ready? Here we go. There's no trick here. I'm not a magician. But there should be water pouring out, right? What should end in disaster actually turns out to be pretty cool. See, what happens is, is the pencil actually plugs the hole. 
You're making a hole, but instead of water gushing out, the pencil plugs the hole. So what should have ended badly ends up pretty good. And that's what God does for us. What should have ended in death, our sin, because of mercy, because of our sin, we're positioned for death, but because of God's mercy, it ends up in life because God shows favor. So he saves us. But here's, here's where this illustration, keep going, we're not done yet. See, I've got more pencils here. So you think it'll hold up the more I do? Let's try it and see, all right? Because of God's grace, he saves us, but then he goes beyond that, right? It's not just mercy. He shows us grace beyond mercy. So now that we are his children, he can take everything in our lives, all the bad stuff we've done and all the things that that we do or could happen to us that are bad throughout our lives, and he can use it for his glory. So, I mean, COVID, he can take that, even that, and use it for good. Let's say... Um, a, a problem in your family, or even a failed marriage, or, and, and listen, none of these things are good, right? We agree these are bad, but, but anything, you know, a failed marriage, God can take that and use it for his glory. What about something that may have happened to you in your past that you had no control of? Abuse. Something someone did that is inexcusable and horrible to you, God can take that and use it for his kingdom and his glory. It doesn't take away the pain. doesn't take away the bad the evil, but he can use it for his glory. What if you're called to do something incredible for God and you're saying, God, I'm not worthy. I can't, like Moses, I can't speak well or there's some other reason why you're disqualified and God says, I will take you with all your weaknesses and I will make you strong. All of the bad stuff, God can take it, whatever it is. Because of mercy first, we don't get what we deserve, which is death, but because of grace, God gives us far more than we could ever deserve. And he uses it for his glory. Thank you, Grace. I don't call her Grace much, but Grace. God is gracious. David made Mephibosheth a son. He went beyond what what he deserved. He did deserve death, according to the standards of the day. But he goes beyond that. He shows grace. And God does the same with us. He gives us the relationship. 2 Corinthians 5.18. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gives us an inheritance. He gave Mephibosheth his inheritance back. God gives us an inheritance. We are heirs along with Christ to the kingdom of God. David gives Mephibosheth a seat at the table, his table. He's taken care of forever. And guess what? If you accept Christ, we have a seat at God's table in eternity. We will be taken care of for all of eternity if we will accept his grace, his mercy. So what makes Christianity, this question was asked, has been asked through the years, what makes Christianity different from all other religions? Several years ago, several years ago, that question was discussed at a conference, and some of the the best thinkers of the day were arguing this question. They argued that Christianity was unique because in teaching, it was unique in teaching that God became man, and those there quickly realized, no, that's, you know, we, we have other, you know, religions who believe that God's become men. That's not what makes it unique. What about the resurrection, they said? So no, other faiths believe that dead rise from from the grave, that that dead dead will rise. So C.S. Lewis walks in. He hears this argument going on. In his words, I don't think I would ever say rumpus, but he says, what's the rumpus about? What's all the commotion? What are you guys arguing about? They tell him what they're arguing about. They're arguing over what makes Christianity unique. What is it that makes it so special? He says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. 
grace. That's what separates it from all other religions. The very heart of the gospel is the supreme truth that God accepts us with no conditions whatsoever. When we put our faith and our trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in Christ and in Christ alone, nothing we can do, nothing we can achieve, we can't earn it, we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and God accepts us with no conditions. Although we are helplessly sinful, God in grace forgives us completely. There's no conditions on forgiveness either. Although we are in a hopeless state, God gives us hope. Because of His Son, Jesus Christ, it is by His infinite grace that we are saved, not by moral character, He says, works of righteousness, commandment-keeping, or church-going, None of that's going to get you into heaven by itself. When we do nothing else but accept God's total pardon, we receive a guarantee of eternal life, a seat at his table for all of eternity. Only by the grace of God are we saved. Nothing we can do. The gospel's called good news, and I would agree that's good news, wouldn't you? Because I can't be good enough. At the, God had every right to just let us die. He would have been justified in doing so. He had every right to let us suffer the penalty of sin, but because of his mercy, he does not give us what we deserve, which is death and hell. And because of his grace, he gives us eternal life and so much more. You can spend your entire life trying to explain it. The greatest minds that have ever existed can't explain it. You can spend your whole life trying to figure it out, And you'll never, from an intellectual standpoint, completely figure it out because no one knows the mind of God. And listen, it doesn't make sense anyway why God would do this. But if you never get a hold of the love of God, you'll realize you cannot live without it. If you ever, I'll never forget, starting out in ministry, I was working with kids and with students at the time, and I asked somebody who was in youth ministry, I said, how do you get... How do you motivate students to follow Christ? And he said, the only thing I know is if you can get them to fall in love with Jesus. And that is absolutely true. If you will fall in love with Jesus Christ, if you will discover God is not some distant, robotic, dictatorial being that leaves us to fend for himself, but he is a God who gave himself, gave his one and only son so that you could be saved. If you will ever get a hold, grasp the love of God, and fall in love with Jesus Christ. No one will ever force you, have to force you to follow him. You will pursue him with all that you are and all that you have, and you will never look back. I want to invite you to fall in love with Jesus today. Because of his grace and because of his mercy, you can be free from sin if you will trust him. Let's just go before the Lord in prayer as we enter a time of commitment. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. We do not deserve what you've given us. Thank you for your mercy. We deserve death. We deserve hell. Yet you gave your son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sins. I thank you for the story of David and Mephibosheth, what it beautifully illustrates, but the reason it's so beautiful is because it illustrates your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I just have to believe that here in this place or at home watching, there's somebody who's never tasted that mercy or that grace. And maybe today for the first time, they're catching a glimpse of your love. They're under conviction. They don't even know what it, what's happening, but they know that they're suddenly convicted by their sin. 
They realize, as the verse says, that we've all sinned, and that includes them. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody under that conviction right now, that they would just listen to your Holy Spirit for the first time as you call out to them and draw them to yourself. They don't have to have all the answers. None of us have all the answers. They don't have to have a, a, a formula. All they have to do is recognize that they are sin in sin, that they've done things wrong, that they are lost without you, and that, Jesus, you died for their sins. And, and if they will just invite you into their life, ask you for forgiveness, accept the sacrifice that you offered on the cross, believe in you as the Lord who is alive, they can be saved. They can cry out to you right now, and you will save them. For those of us who know you, Lord, are we passionately in love with you, or do we need to fall in love with you all over again? Lord, are we displaying these characteristics? Are we showing grace in our lives? Are we showing mercy If someone were to read a chapter of our life story, would we illustrate your grace and mercy and how we treat others? If not, what needs to change, Lord? What do we need to do? Show us, convict us, and may we respond in repentance and obedience. But whatever you want us to do during this time of commitment, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would be obedient. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?